Thank you, Jeremy. Would you pray with me? Let's bow our heads together. Just between you and the Lord right there, would you just say, Lord, would you please speak to me today? I'm here. I'm, I'm willing to listen. My heart is open. My mind's alert. Lord, help me to hear what you would have to say to me today. Lord, indeed, that is our prayer as we come to a time like this of worship. God, your word tells us that you're enthroned upon the praises of your people. You inhabit the praises of your people. And Lord, we recognize that you are on your throne. You're in control. Your will is perfect. So, Father, now as we open your word, would you speak to us? May we hear from you. Touch our hearts, convict where necessary, comfort where needed. And Father, this last week, even in the chapel family, there have been a number of folks in the hospital and and ill. And and so, God, we ask that, God, you would be a God who heals in those situations. God, others are in need of comfort today, and we pray for that. God, thank you that you're a God of peace. Your word says a peace even that passes understanding. So God, may that presence invade this place today. As we now look at your word in Christ's name, amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to begin reading in just a moment, but the title of the message is Glorify God in Everything. Is there anything left out of everything? No. Glorify God in everything. And the word glory, in order to glorify God, let's explain or understand the word glory, is kind of a hard word to define. In the Old Testament, it meant weight or heaviness, which suggests substance and importance. In the New Testament, it meant the honor resulting from a good reputation. So when I talk about glorifying God, it is in a sense, that we are shining a light on God. Now, here's the cool thing about God. God doesn't need a light. He is the light. Read the book of Revelation. In heaven, there's not going to need to be a sun or moon or stars or lamps or anything because God's light will radiate throughout heaven. There won't be any night there. They won't ever have to close the gates because it will never be night. It's daytime all the time because of God's glory. So my little spotlight shining at God doesn't necessarily add light to his glory, but my life can reveal more of his glory to people who can't see it. You know what it means to receive glory. Anybody here ever hit the winning shot at the buzzer in a basketball game? Okay, I'm not seeing any hands. Anybody ever dreamed of hitting the winning shot at the buzzer? Anybody ever seen somebody hit the winning shot at the buzzer? I have whether it was Christian Leitner a few years ago or maybe something a little more recent than that, where do all the eyes go when the winning shots hit at the buzzer? Probably on the person that just made the shot. And because it's at the buzzer, the game's over, and especially if it's high school or college, the stand's empty. And who do they go to? The guy that just hit the shot. If you've kicked the winning field goal in a football game, all eyes go to the field goal kicker. Now, if he misses, all eyes go to him too, but for different reasons. Or if you've ever hit a walk-off home run, 
all the eyes go to that guy as he trots around the bases. And at that moment, he's receiving glory. And I'm okay with you being noticed if you've hit the walk-off home run, if you've hit the shot, if you've, you know, in soccer, if you've kicked the winning goal and, you know, right at the buzzer in soccer. I don't really understand soccer. The clock goes the wrong way in soccer. I, I just I don't understand that. You never know when the game's going to be over. They just tell you how long they've been playing. Man, they've been playing for like an hour and a half. When's this going to end? Any soccer fans here? So sometimes you can receive glory from that. So maybe that's a little indication of what we want to do with God. Because God is worthy of glory. And it's way bigger than hitting the winning shot, okay? Or kicking the winning field goal. But here's what our lives should do. Our lives should redirect the focus of everybody we come in contact with to God. Now, we have some problems that keep that from happening. The three-letter word, sin. Is there anybody here that's not struggling with temptation? Let me tell you people that don't struggle with temptation. People that yield. It's not a struggle with temptation if you give in. But this morning we're going to look at kind of a history lesson real briefly, but then just some practical things about temptation and then ultimately how we can glorify God in everything. You've gotten your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. One last picture. This illustration comes uh, from a book by John Piper, Passion for God's Glory. And he, he talks about the difference between a microscope and a telescope. And I really want you to get this picture in your mind so that your life is going to be more like a telescope than a microscope. What does a microscope do? Well, it magnifies. Telescope magnifies as well, but a microscope magnifies very small things so that they really appear bigger than they really are, right? There are certain things you look under a microscope and see that you could not see without the microscope, and they're right there. They're inches from your face. You can't see it. Telescope draws in things from far away and makes them bigger than they appear to the naked eye, but it still doesn't make them as big as they really are. So when we think about God's glory, it's about the telescope. It's about the more we know God, the more we know Him through His Word, the more we know Him through our relationship with Him, we're taking something that's way bigger than we can comprehend and at least magnifying it a little bit more so that we can see it more as it really is. That's another issue or part of bringing glory to God. Let me read these first 11 verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased. For they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as examples for us that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and 
were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So what we're looking at this first part is simply learn from the past. Have you ever heard somebody say, you really need to learn from your mistakes? There's one better than that. Learn from other people's mistakes so that you don't have to make those mistakes yourself. And so Paul is going to give a little history lesson to the church in Corinth. Now, why does he have to teach them the Old Testament? Well, because these people were not raised in the church. They were not raised Hebrews or Jews where they even knew the Old Testament. They knew of it but may have never read it until they've come to faith in Christ. And so Paul says, you need to learn from the past. And Paul, four times in his writings, uses this phrase, I would not have you unaware, or I don't want you to be unaware. Three of the four times that he uses it, he adds the word brethren. So Paul is saying there's something that you're ignorant of. In fact, some translations translate this, I would not have you ignorant. When I was in seminary, one of the favorite lines of the single girls in seminary was to quote Romans, I would not have you ignorant, brethren. But the reason they're ignorant is they're unaware. They, they lack information, all right? And so Paul is saying, I don't want you to be unaware about the things of the past. Now understand, our fathers all were under the cloud. What cloud is he talking about? The cloud in the Old Testament that when they left Egypt for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness. And they followed a cloud by day, and they followed fire at night. Or the fire at night would sit over the camp. That was indication of the presence of the Lord. It says they also passed through the water or through the sea. What's he talking about? The Red Sea. When the children of Israel left Egypt, they came to the Red Sea. And Moses raised his staff. The waters parted. They crossed through on dry land. And then what happened to the Pharaoh's, that were, Pharaoh's army that was following them? They were all drowned. Chariot wheels get stuck in the mud and all that kind of stuff. And how many Israel, how many children of Israel are we talking about here? Hundreds and hundreds of thousands, perhaps over a million people moving through the wilderness. And so Paul is saying, understand, they all passed through the clouds. They all were baptized into Moses. Literally, they were all part of the Mosaic Covenant. They all ate and drank of the same spiritual food and drink. And all he's meaning by that is this is non-carnal food, literally supernatural. Manna fell from heaven. They had a rock that they got water from. In fact, there was a Jewish legend that this rock followed them. And Paul's making reference to that. And you go back and read the rabbi that started this legend. It's either that the rock followed them or the, the water followed them from the rock. But the rock is Christ is what Paul's talking about. And the word that he uses for rock, and I don't want to get into minutia of Greek here, but typically, like Peter's name, was the word petros, and it meant a large rock or a boulder. This word here is the word petra, which means a huge cliff. And so Paul is, is referencing all of this blessing of God, the Messiah, taking care of them in the wilderness in so many different ways. And yet, God was not well pleased with most of them. And I read that and I thought, that's kind of an understatement. Because of the people that left Egypt, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people that left Egypt, how many of those entered the promised land? Two. 
Now, there were children born during the wilderness experience. We had 40 years, so there were more than just Joshua and Caleb that entered the promised land, but the people that left Egypt, only two people. And so when, when Paul writes, God wasn't real pleased with them. God was not well pleased. They did not. They were disqualified, literally. In fact, Paul is just in the verse right before verse 1 of chapter 10 said, I want to make sure that I live my life in such a way so that after I have preached to others, I would not be disqualified myself. And yet the fact of the matter is these folks were disqualified. In fact, it says they were laid low in the wilderness. It literally means they were strewn all across the wilderness. Now, let me give you four examples of that. First one that he mentions is, don't, these are examples. Paul's saying this is kind of a stamp, this is a pattern that you have so that you don't do this. This should look for you like one of those big circles with a line through it. <laughs> don't follow their example. First of all, don't be immoral. Don't be idolaters. What's an idolater? Somebody that worships an idol. Literally, the word means a, uh, an image servant or worshiper. Now, most of you would then say, well, that's easy. I don't have one of them idols. I don't have like a golden calf or anything at my house. So let me, let me put it in our language. Augustine said, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshipped. Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshipped. That's idolatry. And Paul says, don't be an idolater. Don't create something with your hands that becomes the most important thing in your life. Or don't treat God like he's something you made with your hands. Don't be an idolater. In fact, one of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't make any graven images. You shall worship the Lord your God and Him alone. God is a jealous God. In fact, in this instance, He's talking about they sat down to eat and drink, but they stood up to play. While Moses was on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, do you know what the children of Israel were doing? The people that had already witnessed the, the parting of the Red Sea, they were basically saying to Aaron, hey, could you create for us something we can worship that we can see? And what they were trying to do, and they created a golden calf. Now, they tried to justify it by saying, okay, all the plunder that we took from Egypt, we're going to melt it down and make us something we can see. And they tried to mix idolatry with the worship of Yahweh, the one true God. It don't work like that. The one true God must be worshipped truly, <laughs> rightly, according to his word. Nor act immorality, nor act immorally. The word is the word porneo. It means to act as a harlot. And he gives one indication. The children of Israel acted like a harlot with the daughters of Moab. And it says 23,000 died in one day. God's judgment was swift. And if you go back and read the book of Numbers, you're going to say, well, wait a minute, 24,000 died. Yeah, 23 the first day. A 1,000 died later for a total of 24,000. Don't act or do not try the Lord. Literally, it means to test thoroughly. It's literally this. You're testing God by seeing just how far we can go. And the children of Israel tested God in the wilderness. The children of Israel who had been spared. Now, keep in mind, they had been captive for 400 years in Egypt. They had been slaves. They had been beaten. They had been put under the foot of Pharaoh. 
But after just a little while out in the desert, you know what some of them were saying? Can we not just go back? That was testing God. And how do you really test God? You're basically saying, God, we cannot trust you. And so because of that, they were destroyed by serpents. The fourth thing, nor grumble. Again, these people were hungry, so God feeds them. You know what they started grumbling about? Manna again? I don't know what your favorite food is at your house when your mama puts it on the table and you go, this again? But let me tell you, for the adult perspective, is like when the children get to pick and we're going, McDonald's again? That's what the children of Israel were doing. They grumbled, and so they were destroyed by the destroyer. In fact, the word for destroyer here is the same word for the angel of death that came and visited them in Egypt and passed over the children of Israel but took the firstborn of the people of Egypt. It's also the same word for the angel that came after David sinfully took a census of all of his people and they experienced the sword of the Lord, same word. They experienced the destroyer. But here's what Paul's saying. All of that happened as an example. That's what not to do. So learn from the past. Let's look at the present then. Look for an exit. I like this. Look for an exit. Let me read verses 12 and 13. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. And if you're taking notes, this part's going to be just real practical, right out of God's Word. First thing he says is, if you think you stand, you better take heed. What's he saying? Listen, as soon as you get overconfident, what's the first thing that happens? You forget that you need God. And he said, so if you're there and you're getting overconfident, now how would they be overconfident? Well, maybe they've just read this part and said, well, I'm not immoral. I'm not an idolater. I'm not grumbling. I'm not doing these things that he just said don't do. And so at times with our very strength, we take our focus off the main thing. And so Paul says, you need to take heed. Literally, you need to pay attention or you're going to fall. And then very clearly in verse 13, he says, There's no temptation that's overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with every temptation will provide the way of escape. Let me just give you some principles based on that verse and a passage from James. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, look at James, the book of James. I just want to give you some principles on temptation. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth 
First thought is this. God does not tempt you. When you're being tempted, it is not God that tempts you. God allows tests to come our way, but he never tempts us to evil. James 1.13. Listen, it also says God, doesn't, God cannot be tempted and God cannot tempt. Why can't God be tempted? You ever thought about that? Why can't God be tempted? If your answer is, well, he's God, you need to go a little deeper than that. And I think if you go a little deeper than that, it will even unpack some of the reasons why you are tempted. The reason that we are tempted is always about us trying to find meaning in life or happiness or joy or fulfillment or contentment apart from God. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were tempted. Why were they tempted? Because the enemy deceived them into thinking that God was holding out on them. And that everything that they had in the garden wasn't enough. That God wasn't taking care of them. Surely you won't die. God knows as soon as you eat of the fruit, you're going to be like Him. The same thing happens to us, men and women. Listen, when you're tempted, it's because your flesh, the things you lust for, or the enemy comes and tries to tell you, you'll be happier if you do this, experience this, have this. And the reason God can't be tempted is He doesn't need anything. There's nothing lacking in God. His total fulfillment and contentment is in Himself. Now, does that give you a clue where our contentment ought to be? If our total contentment, if our fulfillment was totally in God, we wouldn't be tempted because there's nothing lacking. So God can't be tempted by evil. God doesn't tempt anyone. Second, there's no new temptations. You're not encountering something that nobody else has ever experienced. I think there's some people that kind of have this in mind. Well, you just don't understand. This temptation was just too great. Nobody in the history of the world has ever experienced this temptation wrong it's things that are common to man literally it means it's human stuff hebrews hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who's been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin what does that mean talking about jesus do you realize that jesus was tempted in every way that you are there's no new temptation. Jesus experienced all of it, and yet without sin. So, is it a sin to be tempted? No. Being tempted is not a sin. Jesus was baptized, and it said he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted. He was there 40 days and 40 nights, possibly being tempted for all 40 days. We only see the big three at the end of it. And the big temptation really was to sidetrack God's plan and bow down and worship me and I'll give you all this stuff. Or prove that you are God by demonstrating it. Or you're hungry? Yeah, and eating for 40 days. Rocks start looking good, I guess. Looks like a loaf of bread. Well, Jesus could have turned that rock into bread, right? But he didn't. It's not a temptation. It's not a sin to be tempted. The sin happens when we yield to it. And one other thing that's not on the screen how did Jesus overcome temptation? There's a pattern here. Every single time that Jesus was tempted, what did he do? Quoted scripture. 
best way for you to overcome temptation is to know the Word of God. Because Satan comes and whispers half lies, half truths. They're all lies. And Jesus quoted the Scripture back. He said, no, that's not what it says. <laughs> Here's what the Bible says. So you've got to know the Word of God. So young people, adults, if you're struggling in a certain area, memorize Scripture that deals with that area. And the next time you're tempted, start quoting Scripture. What I found out is Satan will hang around when you start talking about Jesus. He hates it. Start worshiping God. So there's no new temptations. Jesus encountered every one of them and yet without sin. And you think about how difficult that is. Pressure builds during temptation. The release point is when you yield. But that opens up a whole other can of worms. Because what you thought would satisfy you didn't. It was fleeting. The Bible says sin is fun for a season or for a moment. It's instant. Third thing is, here's how temptation happens. In first, in James chapter 1, it says, You're tempted when you're carried away and enticed. My two questions there are, carried away from what and enticed by what? James is writing in, in the first chapter of James. It says, You're tempted when you're carried away. Well, how are we carried away? Basically, our eyes are on Jesus, and something over here gets our attention. But that's the word, what carried away means. It means there's bait in a trap over here, and either we smell it or see it, and it takes our attention off where we're supposed to go, and we go over there and reach for it, and all of a sudden, we're trapped. You're carried away and enticed. Enticed is like the, the, the worm on the end of the hook. The fish was swimming along, going to school. Something drops in the water, he gets carried away. Quits going where he's going, pays attention over here, and then he's enticed. Man, that worm looks good. I guess that's what's going on. Through, I don't know if that's what's going on through a fish's mind, but apparently there's something about whatever we dropped in there, whether it's bacon or corn or a chicken neck or something <laughs> that attracted his attention, and now it's enticing him, and he doesn't see the hook. Here's our problem. The stuff that Satan drops in our water, we never see the hook. Wise up. There's a hook. If it's something that's not from God, it's not of God, there's always a hook. You're tempted when you're carried away and enticed. And here's the point, okay? So we're carried away, we're enticed. Has sin happened yet? Not yet. Lust is starting to take place. And here's number four. Look for the exit. I love what he says back in 1 Corinthians. God won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with every temptation will provide the way of escape. Definite article, single noun, one way. I brought you an exit sign. Here's what I want you to remember. When you're tempted, look for the exit. There are four exit signs in this room right here. Three of them are red, one of them is green. Not counting this one. This would be number five. And what color is this? And I've been thinking about that a lot this week. Why are most exit signs red? Doesn't that say stop? I know it should be warning, but I'm thinking, okay, get there and stop. No, you want to go through it. <laughs> so the back door is actually a green exit sign. I'm on a personal mission. We're changing all exit signs to green. Green means go. This is where you're supposed to go. So here's where we get smart, children of God. 
when you see temptation coming, rather than grabbing for it and playing with it, what should we start doing? Where's the exit, God? You promised there would be one. And that's that first step where you're going to get your eyes off of that and start putting it back on God. God, where's the exit? That's what it said. Way of escape literally means exit. And there's one way, and his name's Jesus. So that you'll be able to endure it. What he's saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 is, he doesn't keep us from it, but you can walk through it. And not yield. Not fall. Not become disqualified. Look for the exit. Number five, lust gives birth to sin. Again, the reason we yield to temptation is we we have forgotten that we are totally satisfied in God. And we're looking for satisfaction, contentment, fulfilling, fulfillment, meaning in life, joy, happiness. We're looking for that somewhere other than God. And lust always gives birth to sin. If you don't stop it, or as Barney Fife said, if you don't nip it in the bud right there, sin's coming. Number six, sin brings forth death. Death. Because of Adam and Eve in the garden, death entered the world. We're all going to experience physical death unless Jesus comes back before we die. We're all going to experience physical death. But for the believer... It's just physical death, not spiritual death. But what happens for the believer when we sin? Fellowship gets damaged. Our spiritual life gets damaged. Our witness in the world gets damaged. Sin brings forth death. Now, what do we do when we mess up? Don't raise your hand, but it's, I want to think about it. Is, it. is it possible there's anybody in here that has never sinned? If I was to have you raise your hand, the person that didn't raise his hand just sinned because he lied. What does the Bible say? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. One person lived a sinless life, Jesus, period. That's it. Nobody before him, nobody after him. We have all sinned. The Bible says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what happens when you sin? 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says, I've written these things to you so that you will not sin. But if you do, you have an advocate with the Father. So what do we do? As soon as we mess up, we run to Jesus. We confess our sins. What does that mean? It means we agree with him that it was sin. We speak the same thing. That's what it means to confess. You were forgiven at the cross. Relationships not what's broken, fellowships what's messed up. And so we come back to him. And we we receive the forgiveness that's there because of the cross. Now that's if you're a child of God. What what do you do if you're not a child of God? Then you need to come to Jesus and acknowledge I'm a sinner. And because of that I'm separated from God. And I want Jesus Christ to forgive me of my sin. To cleanse me, to come into my life, become my Lord and Savior. Last thing, then, is the overriding principle. Last verse, and I'm done. Verse 31, then. And I would paint this over the whole passage, and really, 
the whole book of First Corinthians, and I'd really paint it over your whole life. Between verses 13 and 31, Paul's talking about what you can eat and what you can drink. And Paul said, you know what? I could, I could narrow it all down to, and just sum up this one verse. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Sin and temptation is not going to be the issue if I'm living my life in such a way that I'm trying to bring glory to God. I'm trying to peel back the layers so that people can see God in all of His glory. Psalms talks about creation reveals the glory of God. My life should do the same thing. John Calvin said creation is the theater of God's glory. My thought when reading that was this, I want to be the theater too. I want people when they look at my life to give glory to God. A Christian will glorify God to the extent that he is overwhelmed by the greatness and glory of God. What about you? Bow your heads with me as we pray. Father, if my goal is to glorify God, to glorify you, would you continue to show me how to do that? And I recognize that one of the pitfalls, one of the traps along the way is that we are prone to wonder. God, help us to wise up and see temptation as it comes so that we can refocus on Jesus and not yield to the temptation. Thank you that we have the comfort of knowing that our high priest, Jesus, has been tempted in every way that we have been. There's nothing new. And yet he never sinned. And God, thank you for verse 13, that with every temptation, you will provide a way of escape. God, would there just be lights and bells and buzzers and warning signs going on in our mind when temptation approaches? And the most natural thought would be not to yield to the temptation, but to walk through the exit. I pray for men and women all over this room. God, we, we struggle. Life's hard. And yet there is joy in following you. God, help, help us to realize that our only contentment comes from you. We have never been happy playing with the stuff of this world. God, you are most satisfied in us when we are most satisfied in you. Thank you for that. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.